Well, welcome to all of you. It's a wonderful morning, and I welcome those who are regular attenders. I welcome all of you that have come here for maybe the first time. This is kind of an interesting experience that we gather together each week with this expectation that we're going to hear something from the Lord. And I believe today that each of you have been brought here for a reason and that you will hear something that you need to know, something that will build into your life. And so I'm just thankful that you're here today. Now, I've had the opportunity to preach from time to time, and I have been looking through the book of Exodus, starting with the call of Moses, and we've been following him along for these last, well, it's probably been a couple of years. So just in February, we were in chapter 16 where the people of Israel are in the wilderness and they're hungry and they're discouraged and then God provides quail and manna for them. So that was in February. And then just two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus in chapter six of the book of John as he calls himself the bread of life. And if you remember, it was only a couple of weeks ago, but if you remember, we baked bread. And the smell of bread permeated this room. Now there have been a few folks that have let me know that they are hoping that today's sermon would involve pizza. (laughs) Well, I have something, but it isn't pizza. It's a chunk of driftwood. We've got it someday on a trip somewhere. I don't know if we were at the beach or on a trip into the mountains or what, but it's, it's supposed to represent the staff of Moses because that's where we are today in Exodus 17. Now, many of you know that I retired from the fire department just a couple of years ago. And I began my career as a volunteer responding to a station that wasn't very far from my home. Now being a firefighter gives you a disease and that disease is called war stories. And so I'll recount a war story for you this morning. It was among the first fires that I ever responded to. It was a garage fire. And so when my engine arrived, we put on our breathing apparatus and took the hose line to the man door of the garage, opened it up and crawled in and I was a second person on the line because I was pretty new, so I wasn't the person on the nozzle actually putting out the fire, I was just kind of the guy coming in behind him to back him up. So. I haven't got a lot of experience. I don't really know what's going on. It isn't that hot, and I thought it was gonna be really hot. So that tells me now that the fire hadn't really been going very long, so it didn't have a chance to really build up that heat. So anyway, we're crawling into the fire, and the nozzleman starts putting the water on the fire, and then all of a sudden he shuts the bale down, shuts it on, throws it on the floor, turns to me and yells, get out, get out! Now I, without much experience, know that that's not a good thing. You don't wanna hear somebody turn to you and yell, get out, get out, so what do I do? I try to get out, 
I turn around and follow the hose line until I get to the door, then I stand up and I turn to back out the door and I can't get out. And so I'm bashing that door with my behind. It's like, what's what's going on? And then a hand reaches around the door, grabs me, pulls me forward, and then out the actual door opening because I had been stuck between the door and the wall. I couldn't see it. Bam, you're not gonna get yourself through a door by bashing it with your rear end. But fortunately, there was somebody there who could reach around, pull me through, and get me out of that building. So come to find out that what that nozzleman had seen was a gas can and he was concerned that the gas can would catch fire and fill that space with so much heat that we probably would have been killed. So we got out, got the big man door open, or the garage door open, and put the fire out that way. Now that kind of experience is often referred to as a baptism of fire. That's an expression that's used to indicate that someone has been introduced to something that's common to that profession. It's really often used of soldiers who undergo their first live battle. And so sharing that experience is something that brings a sense of camaraderie and belonging. So today we're going to look at two events that are recorded for us in Exodus 17. And one of them involves that first time battle and that trial by fire for first time untested and untried soldiers. It's pretty significant for them because they have been slaves up until just a few weeks before and now they're going to be tried. But let's read first from Exodus 17, the first seven Verses. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament, and so if you're not familiar with the Bible, you just open up from the left, and it's the second book in. Just making sure, okay? And in Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, 
is the Lord among us or not? Now there's a couple of things that stand out to me as we read this passage. Their forefather, Abraham, was known for his faith. He was told at the age of 75 that he would be the father of many nations and he didn't have a child. And yet, he believed. He didn't have that child that would be the forefather of all those people until he was 99. That's faith, believing that what God has told you is true when what you see in front of you says, "Uh uh-uh, not true. But he believed. Now, Israel has just recently been set free from Egypt, and they are wandering in the desert. And their faith is pretty small. And so they're stressed by the fact that there's no water. Now, the place that they arrived in is called Rephidim, which simply means resting place. And if you were to look it up on the internet and try to see a picture of it, you would see that it's a pretty hilly place And then right in the cleft of a couple of hills, there's a huge carpet of palm trees, which tells you that there must be water there sometime. But they arrived at a time, probably early summer, when there was no water. There was a dry stream bed, and that was very disappointing. And it's even likely that they went to this place expecting there to be water in that stream. But they find it, dry as a bone. But here's what I find interesting. It is very possible that they made this complaint to Moses with manna in their hands. Remember just a couple of weeks ago and and then in February we talked about the manna. Manna came every morning and on the sixth day twice as much as you needed so that God was providing food for them. And this miracle is touchable. It's collectible. It's right there every day. And you can imagine that the first time that they set out on their journey, they wondered, are we gonna have to go back to get this stuff? But no. They found the morning after their first journey away from where the manna was first given that it fell there too. This is amazing stuff. It falls wherever they are in quantities that are enough to feed them and they have it in their hands. And yet somehow, this experience does not translate into faith. Now we got to remember that these people were slaves just weeks before. Provision was made for them. They didn't go out and provide for themselves. They were property. And so the property owner would provide for them. He may not have provided a tremendous amount, but it was provision. And so now this immediate need for water just overwhelms them and they despair and they begin to accuse Moses of purposely doing this, purposely leading them into the desert to kill them. And it's not the last time either. And the communication that they had must have been angry. Has that ever happened to you? 
something happens to trigger your emotions and they burst forth from you. And whoever happens to be in the vicinity gets the benefit of all of your anger. Well, because of this anger, Moses is convinced that the people are not very far from stoning him. And so he cries out to God. Do you know that the very first time that the word rock is used in the Bible is here in Exodus 17? We've already seen a first time use in Exodus chapter three when Moses is out and he sees that burning bush. You remember we talked about that? And God says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And that word holy was used for the very first time there in Exodus. So God tells Moses to gather the elders, take that staff, and remember that was the one that he used to throw it down and it became a snake, then he picked it up and it became a staff again. It's the one that he used to uh, fight against the magicians of Egypt. It's the one he used to strike the water and the waters parted. And then after they went through the water, he struck it again and the waters came back. He's supposed to take this staff, take the elders, and go and stand before all the people. And God says that he would be there in their presence. Now we read about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 10. So 1 Corinthians 10, the first five verses. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now that word translated overthrown has a picture of it of strewn about, things strewn about. And it gives a very graphic picture of the bodies of the, of the nation of Israel lying in the wilderness because they were denied entry into the promised land because of their lack of faith. So even though Israel had all these spiritual benefits and blessings, they still failed to enter the promised land. Now Moses did not probably know this, but he was demonstrating a spiritual truth. Look again at verse six of chapter 17 of Exodus. God is speaking and he says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, with our hindsight, we can see this as what's known as a type. The word type in this context means imprint or pattern. And in effect, the words of God that he will stand before Moses on the rock there is an identification of God and the rock together, that where God is standing, that rock that he's standing on is, is him. 
And in, in that 1 Corinthians passage, Paul alludes to the belief that was happening among the Pharisees at the time, a rabbinic tradition that the rock that he struck, that water came out of, actually followed them around as they traveled throughout those 40 years. And that's why he says that the rock followed them and the rock was Christ. So what's happening in this picture is that when Moses takes the staff and strikes the rock, he is hitting God. And in that immediate moment, God is demonstrating that yet again, he is the source of the water. He will provide for the needs of the people. Now Moses doesn't believe for one second that because he hit the rock, he was the one providing water. He knew that it was God and God alone. And yet for us, there's a deeper picture happening here. God allows himself to be smitten for the needs of the people. That's the type. It was done in the sight of the leaders of Israel and they are official witnesses because it foreshadows another sacrifice in the presence of the leaders of Israel, a sacrificial lamb on the cross of Calvary. God incarnate in the, Jesus Christ on the cross, smitten for the needs of the people. It's why in the book of Revelation, when they are searching for one who is worthy to open the scroll of judgment, John turns and sees a lamb standing as if slain. He is our sacrificial lamb given by God to take away our sin. This place called Rephidim, resting place, has now become a place of contention. And it is significant enough that they've had no rest, that Moses gives it a new name and he calls it Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Now forever in their history, these place names bring up the failure of the people to trust God. But it also brings up the memory of the rock being struck and God providing. This is true. This is true stuff. God has provided for us a way. In Hebrews 10, it says, through a new and living way, Jesus is our miraculous rock smitten for us. All right, now we're gonna read the second half of Exodus 17, and I am going to call up a couple of helpers. You guys know who you are, come on up. Where are they? They boogied on me. Oh man, maybe they, oh, there they are. Come on up. Yeah, it's okay. This was kind of a, of a last minute thing, so they're, they're still figuring it out. 
So here you go. What do I do? Just hold it up above your head. Okay. All right. I was going to ask Don Odenborg to do this, but, um, you know, he would be a little closer to the age of Moses, but, um, but he decided that he didn't want to do that, so. Oh, no, oh, no, you got to hold it up all by yourself at first. And, and stand right up here where everybody can see you, please. Oh, okay. Okay? And then we've got uh, another stand-in for uh, Aaron or her. I don't know which one he's going to be. But uh, he's been instructed that if Moses starts to, you know, not be able to hold this thing up, that he can help out. Okay? And we'll just see how long Moses, Moses lasts. Yeah, you, you, you can't rest it on your head. And really, technically because, well, you should be holding it way up. Yeah, yeah. That's gonna be harder, you'll see. All right. <laughs> Exodus 17, verse eight. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with, with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So he's gonna have to stand in for both Aaron and Hur. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So when is sunset tonight? <laughs> anyway, picking up in 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I will listen. Okay. I'd like to read a section from a book that I have uh, called Walking the Bible. It's a book by an uh, author by the name of Bruce Feiler, who is an American author. And he went to the Holy Land and walked where these events happened. And I thought his description of this experience at Rephidim was, was worth reading. So please bear with me. He's uh, in the desert with a guide, and the guide's name is Avner. Avner is older than he is. He's also an archaeologist and has spent a tremendous amount of time on the Sinai Peninsula. So he knows the Bedouin people that are there. He knows a lot about the locations and the various different spots, and so he, that, that is the guide that he has with him, and he refers to him, so I thought you probably ought to know who it is. All right. The following morning, we awoke. How you doing? Doing good. All right. The following morning, we awoke early once again, 
and heeding the principal lesson of the desert, perform strenuous activity as early as you can, we decided to climb Jebel Tahuna. Jebel is Arabic for mountain. And it's not far from the Farian oasis. Byzantine travelers believed this tiny mountain was the site of Rephidim, where the Israelites camp on their way to Mount Sinai, where Moses draws water from a rock and where the Israelites wage war with the tribe of Amalek. In the fourth century AD, visiting monks built a monastery and a cathedral to honor those events and made the small community of Farron a bishopric. The remains of their town occupy a small tell near Jebel Tahuna, which itself is lined with several ruined churches. Before starting out, we performed the traditional modern pilgrim's ritual upon reaching a holy site. Shielding ourselves with floppy hats and sunglasses, lathering ourselves with sunblock and UV lip protector, and arming ourselves with an assortment of Kleenexes, insect repellents, and bottles of purified water. For a time, when I started this journey, I felt pampered and a bit sissified to be exbalming myself with such luxuries of the, 12th, uh, the 20th century duty-free store. But the more accounts I read of travelers of previous centuries getting sick, lost, or disease-ridden for weeks, the less guilty I felt. Even the great Lawrence of Arabia was often felled by, in his attempts to help liberate the Bedouin by his repeated bouts of sunstroke, malaria, and other maladies of the desert. So we made our way to the mountain and began heading up the, rock, the narrow rock-strewn path. No sooner had we begun than we were joined by a swarm of hangers-on, a cluster of barefoot eight-year-old boys who tugged at our shorts and reached into our pockets, parroting, money, dollars, Pepsi, USA. We spoke to them. We ignored them. We sighed at them. We turned them down, but they still continued to haggle with us for most of the way to the top. Money, one dollar, two dollar, bakshish. Eventually, after half an hour, they changed tactics and elected to hold our hands and sing to us. <sighs> Just before getting there, though, Abner showed them his Bible and mentioned that we were going to study. Quickly, they hurried down the mountain. <laughs> Once the Israelites... Are we still hanging in there? Okay. Hey, Aaron, you're not supposed to be sitting down. Aaron, you're supposed to be standing there to help him. <laughs> Once the Israelites arrive in the desert, they realize their dire conditions. No water, no food, no idea of where they're headed. Immediately, they start to complain, thereby initiating a cycle that will be repeated for the next 40 years. The people protest, Moses becomes exasperated, God intervenes, and the people are temporarily placated before starting the process all over again. The first source of grumbling described in Exodus 15 was the bitter-tasting water, which God rectified by directing Moses to throw a piece of wood into the water. 
In Exodus 16, the people complain about the lack of food, which God solves by delivering manna in the morning. In Exodus 17, the people complain about having no water to drink, which God addresses by instructing Moses to strike a stone with his staff. In each case, the people receive God's blessing and continue their trek. Suddenly, though, in the middle of Exodus 17, a nomadic tribe called Amalek appears and declares war on Israel. Moses asks Joshua to lead the troops while he, Aaron, and Hur, as previously unmentioned, and a previously unmentioned aide, climb to the top of the hill to oversee. Once there, a strange development occurs. Whenever Moses raises his hands, the Israelites prevail. When he drops his hands, Amalek prevails. No reason is given for Moses to perform this action, and no explanation is given for its power. Moses grows tired, though, so Aaron and her bring a stone for him to sit on. You could do that if you'd like. Okay, well, you're, you're kind of acting out the story. You could do one, yeah. Yeah, because he says, I have the staff in my hand, so... Although you would think if he had it in one hand, he could rest the other one and then, no, put them both up. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> so what's the purpose of this story, I said? What's it suddenly doing in the middle of Exodus? We were sitting on top of the mountain now in the apse of a ruined chapel. A modern cross stood on the spot. Down below, several wadis came together at the foot of the great palm forest. At the intersection of this was a nunnery built alongside the ancient tell. Maybe there's some oral tradition behind it, Abner said. Maybe the Israelites faced some attacks in the desert. And what about the raised arms, I asked. What does that symbolize? The nuns say it foreshadows the cross on which Jesus is crucified. Really? They also believe the 12 palm trees represent the apostles and the Red Sea is a kind of baptism. Well, surely the hands form some connection with God. Abner said, well, ancient people went into war carrying likenesses of their gods. In this case, it's as if Moses is a likeness for God. Oh, a living icon. And an aging one, too. He's 80 by now, you know. I asked him what he thought of Moses at this point of the story. I have some problems with Moses, said Avner. Problems with him as a negotiator between God and the people. He's the one who's carrying the covenant that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Israelites are supposed to follow him. But many times, he gives up. I'm too tired to continue, he says. Oh, but he's been given a tough assignment, I said. Oh, very much so. Jacob couldn't even control 12 sons. Abner said, sons are always more difficult. <laughs> so maybe he's just working out his role, I said. He doesn't yet have the confidence he does when he goes up to Mount Sinai. He doesn't even have the power to hold up his own arms. Abner replied, the point is, he never had that power. He's a middleman. God has the power.
So we're told that God led the people specifically by a different route so that they would avoid war. This is because he didn't want them to be tested too early and yet now, here, war has come upon them. Now who are the Amalekites? Now they appear to be uh, descendants of Esau because there is an Amalek who is listed as a grandson of Esau in Genesis chapter 36, verse 12. Now that, of course, is nearly 500 years ago. What was going on in our world in 1521? But they appear to be a dominant tribe, and we're told in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 to 19, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget so it appears that Amalek attacked the rear of the, the, the stragglers and it was an attempt to, to get booty, to very easily grab belongings of other people. And so they had to fight. Now, I want you to also know that this is another first in Exodus. This is the first time that the name of Joshua is mentioned. And the author who's writing this book, which we believe to be Moses, doesn't explain anything about him, doesn't tell us his history, just says his name, as if we know who he is. But he does figure in the pro very prominently in the story after this. Now these former slaves, just a few weeks away from Egypt, were told that there were 600,000 fighting men that would be men probably between the ages of 20 and 40. And we're not told if they are armed or how they are armed and how ready they are for battle. Now, in our passage, it says they overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So they must have been able to get swords somehow. I, I, I suppose they just went on the internet and ordered them. <laughs> and, and Amazon delivered. No, that's probably not how it happened. They may have picked them up from traveling traders. They may have been able to haggle with Egyptians and get them as they were leaving. So it's, it's interesting that in the passage, Moses tells Joshua to select men to come out to the battle. And I'm pretty sure that Joshua went and picked the men who had the swords, who had actually used them a time or two in practice even though this is going to be their first battle. What? Has he put his arms down at all? No. How are they doing? I can't feel them. He can't feel them. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now it seems to us just a little on the silly side and maybe a little strange that Moses gives the work to Joshua and then says, I'm gonna go stand up on the hill with this, with this uh, staff and I'm gonna be there where you can see me. 
And so they go up on the hill, and that's so that the army can see them, and then whenever his hands are up, they do well. Whenever his hands are down, they don't do well. There are no other battles in the history of Israel that I'm aware of that we have recorded in Scripture where this is a tactic. But I think there's something there that is kind of behind the scenes that we need to see. Because Moses is clearly standing there in an attitude of prayer with his hands up, with the staff of God. And I think that what he is doing, he is visually reminding the people, and Joshua specifically, that battles are not won by prowess and strategy. They are won by the power of God. Remember, this is their very first battle. It's the first one. It's the war story. It's that baptism by fire that I talked about earlier. And since they will hopefully soon be arriving in the promised land, they probably are going to be doing a fair amount of fighting. And so Moses is demonstrating to them that that principle that we have written down in Scripture for us in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And I'll read that one. It says, Then he said to me, and this is the Lord, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So Moses stands in plain sight on the hill, holding his hands up in an attitude of prayer to the God of his fathers. And no one can miss it. But then, being human, his hands drop. Oh, well you, that thing gave you slivers, huh? Oh, good. I mean, oh, that's too bad. Now, note also that Moses brought help with him up on the mountain. He kind of had a sense that maybe this wasn't going to work out too well. And so he brought Aaron and her with him. And and the story makes it really clear that they were needed to help him hold up his hands. See, I've got a 16-year-old who's saying, you aren't going to break me. (laughs) Well... I'm getting close to the end. I've got only about 20 pages left. (laughs) No, actually only a few. So we're almost done. Okay. Cedar Home Baptist Church was founded in 1890. That's 130 plus years ago. And when I think of that, I think of all the prayer warriors that Cedar Home has had down through the years. Do you know some of them? Can you see them in your mind's eye? Have you had the great privilege of praying with some of them? I think you have. See, these are the men and women who have spent much time praying for the ministry, praying for the witness of the church. People who have understood that the actions that Moses demonstrates are very worthy motions and that supporting a church through prayer is just as much the work of the church as doing what I'm doing or teaching a class or leading a committee. And I urge you to see this as vital work of the church 
Please do not become weary. Please do not give up. Pray for the work and the workers. Pray for the needs of the sick. Pray as you have always prayed, knowing that like Moses, the true work of any successful church is done in the prayer closet. We as leaders have asked you to pray regularly for our search committee and for that process. We've designated the first day of every month as a day devoted to prayer and we've asked each of you to sometime during that first day of the month take an opportunity to get a list of all the various different requests and pray for them. It's a recognition that that work is vital to the success of the church. It's not a routine, it is a recognition. And so this passage ends, and we'll end this way today as well. The passage ends with this admonition. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. In Hebrew, that word that we translate recite actually has the picture of sticking it in his ears, taking what has been written and sticking it in his ears. So let's take this today and stick it in our ears too. That has a completely different meaning in our society, doesn't it? Stick it in your ear. Well, we're gonna take this meaning of sticking it in our ears so that we will remember, that we will strive to be prayer warriors, that we will be prayer focused and devoted to the reality that when people pray, God works. Would you stand with me then in closing prayer? And Moses, keep your hands up just a little longer. Let's pray. Our loving Lord, so patiently you have responded to your people in the desert. And with tremendous foresight and a depth of meaning, you showed them your power and your love. So some here today feel as if they too are in a desert. Life is overwhelming and threatening to destroy them. May they find in you their strength, their endurance, their hope. May the sense of your presence be strong and fill them with encouragement. Others of us are in a battle. We try to be strong and fight and often find ourselves at the end of our strength. May each of us find in you that endless source of strength. May we see you going before us and fighting the battle so that we can learn anew the meaning of not by might or power, but by your spirit. And we thank you that there have always been those of our congregation who have been prayer warriors, those who have prayed for needs, prayed for spiritual power and spiritual fruit. May each of us feel encouraged today to know that their work is never forgotten or their words wasted. We ask your blessing now as we go back into your world. May you guide us, direct us, empower us, and fill us. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go in peace. And you can put your hands down.